Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict. As writers, we tell stories. But do we ever stop to think about who we're telling the story to and why? I'm not referring to the real-life author and the real-life audience, like, this story is aimed at queer teenage girls who like video games. I'm talking about what's going on within the fictional pocket universe of the story you've created. Who is the narrator? talking to within the universe of the story? And why is the narrator talking to that person? What's the relationship between them? What's the goal? With me today to talk about this is sci-fi fantasy writer Carlo Jaeger Rodriguez. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. How often do you think about this when you're planning a story, when you're writing a story? Do you always have like an, a sort of invisible audience in mind or do you just sort of wing it? Uh, it? It's hard to, at this point, it's sort of hard to sort of observe that in myself, hmm. mainly because it, it sort of stems from a general, like, I'll start with a general question that I want to answer in, within the framework of the story. And as I sort of figure my way into it, uh, it sort of becomes like a process of elimination. Mm. Uh, sometimes, sometimes though, you know, I am consciously choosing that. And um, even though, for instance, I am not a huge fan of uh, second-person point-of-view stories. Right. When I do write a second-person point-of-view story which is a couple of them, that's where I actually do have to think about that uh, in, mm. in part because I want to create a sort of like an intertextual space between the reader and the story and myself. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I find that it helps me a lot to have that in mind. It's not always explicit in the text. Uh, usually it's not explicit in the text. But... I find when I'm planning a story, or or at least after I start writing it, I start considering, okay, who is this for? Who is this for? Because usually when we tell a story, there's like a reason. Maybe we just have something where we need to vent about, I gotta get this off my chest, and you're talking to a friend, or maybe it's like there's an you're trying to apologize to someone. Are you close to this person? Are you not close to this person? Are you concealing something from this person? And I find that, like, kind of keeping that quietly in the back of my head, even if it's not explicit, I find it incredibly helpful for just, like, setting a tone, setting a focus, like, figuring out some kind of themes and sticking to them and figuring out, like, what's, what's my point here? Is this a confession? Is this an apology? Is this a sales pitch? And I find it helps me kind of 
stick to it. It keeps me from sort of losing control of a story because a lot of times you just sort of start writing and you can't stop and you get lost and you're like, what the fuck is this? Where <laughs> am I? I don't know where this is going, like in a bad way. Yeah, yeah. You know, that like I, I've lost control of the story. Um, I, don't, I don't know where I am. Fuck. <laughs> right, right. And I think that that's, it's really interesting because once I, to, to your point, once I do sort of focus on what the character is trying to do within yeah. that context, that'll give me sort of like a, a, uh, an apparent or demonstrated motivation and an underlying motivation behind that, you know, maybe if you, and I think that that's makes for more interesting characters where they, they're aware of the fact that they are perhaps trying to sell something, but there's something else behind that. Uh, or there's a, a small disconnect between what they apparently say or do and right. why they're doing it. And I mean, that's, that's all of us. And I think that that's great modeling for, for a character because it, it rings true. It feels more plausible. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like this idea of there's so many stories have a sort of disembodied, perfect narrator. And I, I don't much care for that personally. I find it like it's too easy. Good job, cat. <laughs> and <laughs> he just fell off the desk. Um, <laughs> God damn this cat today. Oh, God. Oh, God. What the hell was I talking about? Jesus. Right. I, I feel like there's no such thing as a fully reliable narrator. Even if you're going for third-person omniscient, there's still some of you in there, and there's still a reason. And I, I, I feel like it's healthy to kind of question the stories you're told and always look between the lines. So I feel like fiction kind of should do that in, in some ways. Or I enjoy doing that. Yeah. Um, now that you mention that, a great uh, example of like a third person narration that has like this very arch and um, I've heard it called feminine and I'm, I, I don't disagree, but I'm not sure um, I'm 100% on it, is uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Mm. And it, I haven't read that one. It is It is fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. It's just sort of like... What if uh, Jane Austen, like a Jane Austen stylist, were writing a story about uh, magic coming back to England in the midst of the Napoleonic War era? Oh, cool. So, yeah, I can't recommend that one enough, to be honest with you. That sounds neat. But yeah, the, the, the reason I mention it is because there's lots of little asides, like very wry... Um, asides within the text itself apart mm. from sort of footnotes because it's also like presented as a scholarly uh, history of what happened as well as a narration mm. so there's stories within stories and it's, it's just fantastic it's wonderful oh that's fun that sounds really fun yeah I, I feel like that's something you mentioned too these little asides and these wry bits and I feel like in a really good way that helps you figure out what's your relationship going to be with the reader. And for me personally, if I'm reading a story and I feel like there's some sort of relationship, whether it's, okay, this is sort of a fake academic text and they're trying to teach me something, or this 
or there's a sense of emotional intimacy. I find that so engaging and wonderful and interesting. Um, and, and, and I find that as a writer, that helps me write too. I find having this in mind kind of helps me avoid writer's block mm-hmm. in a big way. Cause it's like, okay, I've got a reason I'm trying to do something with this. So again, you don't get lost. You don't get lost in the forest and have to turn back. I, I, yeah, I think that there's there's something to be said about that because if you have like a maybe not a devious or deceitful outright character who thinks a certain way, or it could even be the narrator that's giving that third person, uh, it does help you to sort of coalesce them in your mind, and what happens next, I feel, becomes really sort of easier to sort of map going mm-hmm. forward and and that i think you're right it does help to have like these distinct personalities um that aren't necessarily completely straightforward within the text sort of uh guiding you along in the writing process once you're done you can go back and sort of either uh, excise or tighten up or you know add as as the case may be because you know that first draft is always going to be you figuring Garbage. out well <laughs> yeah you could say that but it's also you figuring out what the story is and what it means to you right so that's that's the version you stay you stay with you know it's the um i don't I, there's a it's been attributed to uh tolkien that uh when asked about like his notes on the stories on lord of the rings and all that stuff that he said that he, we must be satisfied with the soup that we have uh, eaten and not ask for the the to see the bones of the ox and i feel like mm-hmm. those first drafts are those bones you don't need to see that <laughs> yeah yeah definitely definitely and something i want to stress is that this connection doesn't always have to be explicit in the text i mean i've definitely written a story with a sort of second person ish element to it uh, that's explicit but sometimes it's it's not very often it's not in and that's good uh not everything has to be super obvious and explicit but just keeping it in mind while planning it it'll come out in the work mm-hmm. in 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 ways that are pretty interesting and i've got a squirming cat on me right now hold on i fucking ow god damn shit cat. jesus all right um, so let's talk about how we've used this in some of our own work. I guess I'll start with my English name. In my English name, I, I ha- was having trouble planning it. And then I started thinking, okay, well, why is this guy telling his story? And I'm not sure if I should use the pronoun he, but oh, fuck it. I'll say he for now. But I realized, okay, the reason he's saying this stuff is he's trying to explain himself and apologize to someone he's hurt unintentionally. And that helped me write it so much better with a focus and and an overall tone. And at the end of it, I realized it made so much sense to keep this explicit you in there. Like he's very directly talking to this you because the main character has very little sense of any kind of personal identity. So of course he'd sort of glom on to somebody else who's like solid and has sort of a more uh, consistency to himself a a more a greater solidity Mm -hmm. to himself because he's just this ephemeral shape-shifting almost nothing person (laughs) if i remember correctly he's not even sure who how he came to be so that makes a lot of sense 
Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of people have referred to him as an alien, but I never even planned for him to explicitly be an alien. I never explained what he is, where he comes from. Is he supernatural? Is he from space? What the fuck? I don't know. I genuinely do not know. There is no answer to that question. He just is. I mean, I feel like that makes, <laughs> yeah, that, that made, for me, it made the story much more interesting, mainly because that's it, it, me figuring out his origin story is not the point. It's he's right. and, and to be fair, like, isn't that like sort of what psychology is all about? We peel off all these little layers of right. of like memory and trauma and whatnot. And what's at the center is we we probably think it's maybe nothing. Right. The, the complexity of human identity is basically all those right. layers interacting with, with each other. Right. Like, it's not the hack Hollywood screenwriter thing where it's like, here's the one incident that explains everything. <laughs> right. Like, here's the sanity key. You went under hypnosis, you dredged, you remembered this one suppressed memory, and that explains everything. And now that you know this, you're normal. Mm. Like, no fucking way. Oh, Are you kidding God. me? That, that is, that is a, uh, to be honest with you, with like uh, mental illness, that is a horrible, horrible message. Oh, yeah. Not, not useful it's at all. Awful. It's so harmful. My The second other one that I that I hate the most is like, you have to confront it. Like, no, nah, sometimes you really can't confront it and it's better to run away. For real, sometimes it's just better to leave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you ever, <laughs> hey, buddy, have you ever seen a psychotic break? That's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. But anyway, um, what about one of yours? So... Uh, I'll, I'll go to, you know what, I'm going to go to um, an explicit you as well, which is uh, one that came out in, in Nature Futures, which is Choices in Sequential Order. Mm. And um, just as an aside, this is sort of like my attempt. I sort of hate list stories, <laughs> but I also understand the usefulness of the format, so I'm always trying to figure out ways to break it. Right. And I did it. In this case, it was done via like a heads-up display in the um, guy's spacesuit. He's like trapped on a hell planet, with and he's sort of like glued to a spot. Uh, and it's like his last confession, confidence, if you will, mm-hmm. um, simply because of time and place and the fact that he is pretty sure that he's been poisoned and the toxins taken like a weird, given him like a weird loopy you know, sort of high effect. So he's like in perfectly good spirits, even though he's basically been glued to the spot and he can feel the alien's egg squirming inside his body. Ooh. Yeah, it's 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 not pleasant, but it's all basically sort of confiding in the in the insectoid alien, you know, like, well, you know, you're the only one I got around, so I'm gonna, you know, gonna tell you how I got here. And in, interspersed is like the different classifications of, you know, biological tra- uh, classifications to get to the reveal, if you will. Oh, interesting. Kind of like record scratch. You're probably wondering how I ended up in this situation. <laughs> sort of, sort of, yeah. <laughs> probably wondering how I ended up with alien eggs in my brain. Yeah. Here's how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's see. Um, some of them, a lot of them, this is just sort of a person thinking over stuff in their head and a lot of my works uh, or, or sort of working stuff out in, in a therapy type session. Um, do you find you have trouble writing third person? Because 
I I find I, I have a better ability to write when I'm thinking of who are, who am I talking to, and in third person, that's not quite so obvious. Yeah, I could I could see that. I I sometimes do. Um, it's weird because if I get into the zone, um, I have to really go back and pick through what I wrote because I'll, I'll immediately like want to shift into uh, first person. Yeah, and it's very weird, and and I mean that's an outshoot of or uh, of me relying a lot on like a close third, mm. uh, which I find to be much more useful, mainly because it it keeps that, like you said, that focus is really narrow, and I don't have to try to figure out you know I don't have to tell anyone about uh, what's Lord. Fauntleroy in the next room is thinking about, the, you know, it doesn't matter because he, he's not really the person I'm telling you the story about, you know, and I just think it just keeps things nice and tight and focused in my own head. Yeah. Like you said, and uh, keeps me very firmly rooted in, in that skin. Yeah, the skin of that one character. Right. So I don't know. It, it's a tight third is always like a, a fun, a fun one, mainly because you can also easily occlude information uh, that would be right. very apparent if you were going to go for a full third omniscient, for instance. So yeah, it, or you could also establish that you know you're writing a character who's a huge dumbass and wouldn't <laughs> necessarily think about those things. You know, why why would they know the solution to anything anyway? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I something that has helped me, I think, write in third person is I'm still thinking of who's that narrator and why and who are they talking to. Like, like so I try to put myself in the in the head of so imagine I'm writing a nonfiction piece. Like imagine I don't know, I'm a journalist or something or a historian writing a nonfiction piece about this person. And maybe they're trying to set the record straight or something. Or maybe they're trying to reveal some hidden part of the person. Or maybe they're trying to look at somebody who did something really weird and be like, okay, here's why that happened. Or here's what led up to this. And that, I find, is what helps me write third person. Because if I don't have that in mind, I just kind of get lost again and have so much trouble focusing. Mm. Like I've got a work in progress that's... It's third person, and it's about a musician. Um, and I've, I've realized the way that helps me to focus is to sort of imagine that I'm, like, writing a biography about this this person, about this musician, and what happened to her. And Like a VH1 behind the music. Yeah, exactly. Like, what the true story of blah, 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 what really happened, you know? Nice. One of those things. Like, that helps me. Yeah, I think that that's, that's completely valid. I, I think that you're absolutely right. And um, it, it reminds me of a lot of the formats um, of you know, certain types of podcasts where they, they, you know, it's always about, like, finding some hidden information or information that's not widely known. Because, right. Because why would you want to hear the story that's been told a thousand times? You want to hear right. the, the little hinges of history moments in a... In a story, you don't want to hear like, okay, so everyone knows that uh, for something topical, um, Columbus did, in fact, sail the ocean blue. I've heard that a thousand times. Tell me about how he was a horrible monster. Yeah. Tell me about how he was a human sex trafficker with children. Like, Tell me about that. Gross. How he gave his men nine-year-old girls as rewards for hard work. 
like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, here's the untold story. Here's the other story. And a lot of this might be um, kind of a pers- my own personal belief. And I, I'm guessing a lot of people might disagree with this, but I don't believe that objectivity is real. In journalism, in in writing, I think a lot of writers, especially when we're writing in the third person, have this feeling like we're being objective. And I don't mean like in third person objective narration. I mean in more of like a, a, a moral or political way. And I don't believe that that's really possible. I, I don't believe that humans are really able to be purely objective. I know that we can try. And I think in certain instances, it's a good idea to try. Mm-hmm. But... It, it's an aspiration. It's not possible. <laughs> right. No, no. I, I think I agree with you 100% on that. I, I think that the issue is that for me, like a story that has like a, it seems very straightforward and it's uh, just uh, on all levels, it's exactly what it says. Uh, there might be some entertainment to that, but really it's not, it's not very interesting. It seems uh, for me, I find it a little dull sometimes. Yeah, like, I'm not going to go back to it and and discover something new in it. Right. I'm not going to go back to it and go like, oh, shit, this guy, oh, my God, you know, find this new level to it. Like, I didn't realize this the first time I read it. (laughs) You're just going to go, that was fun, and that was it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think that that's also, um, like, on the other side of that knife's edge is the fact that then you get this desire to tell stories about horrible people but not not necessarily in a in a good way Mm. or not in an interesting way and then it's just like complete edgelord type stuff that's just trying to be shocking and it's like oh that's not it either right 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 like let me show you something gross like okay why are you trying to examine some some aspect of the human condition are you trying to understand people like i i it it's hard to pull off but some of my favorite stories or movies are about these like really screwed up people who do bad things but it's an examination of like what would bring someone to that like there's this movie called the believer that i fucking loved when it came out but it was like it's about a jewish kid who grows up to be a neo-nazi And the screenwriter wrote it because he wrote, he read a news article about a neo-Nazi who it turned out was Jewish. And he wanted to, and he, his goal was like to think, what the fuck would make this happen? You know, what would turn a person into this? How would this happen to a person? What psychologically, like what does this? And so the whole thing is this character study of this like guy who's really troubled and, and it kind of goes into, here's why he's like this. And, and, it's not like it is not validating these choices for sure, but I, I found it to be such an, a, a compelling movie and I really fucking loved it. And so if, if like, say, if you're writing a story about deeply unpleasant people, keeping this in mind of like, OK, if I'm a non if I'm a journalist, imagine I'm a journalist writing about this guy, you know, I, I'm trying to say something. What am I trying to say? And I, and I think it's useful to a writer even of fiction to consider like, yeah, you are part of this. Your ego is in this. A lot of times writers like to talk about like, oh, my characters surprise me and they blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, but this is you. <laughs> this is you writing this. These are your choices. They're not real. Um, and you want to keep that in mind. And I, I, it's almost like a gonzo journalism thing where it's like acknowledging you are a part of the story. And that can turn into this obnoxious egomania thing of like, ooh, look at me. Aren't I interesting? But it's like, just 
by being there, by being an extra person who is in here observing things, you are going to affect behavior. You are going to affect people's behavior. People are going to act differently if they know that there's a journalist around them. They're not going to be the same, probably. And I kind of feel like it's worthwhile to consider that when you're writing instead of like, oh, yes, I'm a purely objective third-person narrator. It's almost like gonzo narration. <laughs> like your brain is in this, whether you admit it or not. Right, right. I, I always, I, I, I want to believe people when they say that, you know, like especially writers when they, they say, oh, my character surprised me. I want to believe that, but also I, I, I also have to sort of um, temper or tamp down the 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 um, the response of my initial responses would be to roll my eyes a little bit because right. it's exactly what you say. It's like, uh, yeah. So you you found out that your character surprised you in what way? Oh, does that mean that you found out that you are not <laughs> entirely sunshine and light? Uh, that right. Big surprise. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, no kidding. I mean, it, it's it. I I laugh about it. I'm I'm not trying to be mean about it, but it's sort of like also one of these things where it's like, um, yeah, a little self reflection is always good. Uh, you know, you just think about it enough, and you observe human nature, and you're you're going to get some messed up results sometimes. Right, right, of course. Yeah, yeah, and there are all these sides to us that surprise us, and I and and I have gotten moments where I'm like. Oh wow, yeah, this part of the story I didn't realize expect it to go there, but like, I don't know, I I I I know what you mean about kind of wanting to roll your eyes a little bit. <laughs> like, yeah, it's okay, like, come on. These these are people you made up. They're doing what yeah, you want them to do. It's not real. <laughs> the muse spoke through me. It's like okay, I guess. Maybe I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess, but you're writing a book called A Tale of Ravens and Magic with a K, so I don't know if you're re- how much the muse is talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay. Yeah, All right, it, buddy. It, it's it's like it's like uh, somebody playing uh, like an RPG or something like that, and uh, oh, my my character! I didn't expect my character to do that. And you're like, uh, you're playing the character. Yeah. Come on, you buddy. pressed the button. Well, I was going for the analog uh, tabletop uh, version, but yeah, that, oh. that works too. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the, 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 I mean, it's funnier as a video game RPG too, because right. there is already a level of disconnect. Yeah. <laughs> you pressed X to do this. Come on, man. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's funny because like you're, you're talking about that and I, I just... Uh, remembered like my most recent piece there's a, a like a very I realized that that was the heart of the story mm. and it's just a conversation between two estranged brothers and one of them who is supposedly uh, ostensibly in the story supposed to be going to stop him from whatever he's plotting right and it's simply like this on both sides of the divide, seeing uh, seeing the same sequence of events, but through their own sort of lens, hmm. and also de- demonstrating that the protagonist in the story maybe isn't really just trying to stop his brother. He hasn't seen him for years, so maybe he's hmm. just lonely too. Right, and it's. It, I realized the moment right. that I, I read back through it that that had to be 
that was never going to be altered. That is the heart of the story. That's the center of the pearl, if you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another one I'm writing, working on. I'm working on a third-person story, and I was having trouble with the narration until I realized, okay, this main character, she's a film student. And when you describe the actions of a film, you use third-person present tense. Mm -hmm. And that's how the story's writing, because she's kind of, she's so, like, disconnected or alienated from her own existence. She's living life as though she's watching a movie. Mm. And that's how it's going to be described. And I'm not going to make that explicit of, like, and and then she saw her life as a blah, blah, you know. I'm not going to do that, but I found it helps me set the tone so well. And it, like, everything kind of started making sense a lot more once I figured that out. Oh, that, that's cool. Yeah, Are you going to have any, <laughs> any instances where it's like, wait, no, cut, cut. <laughs> that's no, not how it I don't went. think so. <laughs> that, that I be, don't think so. That might be a little too meta. <laughs> that could be a little... If you pull it off, it's amazing. But if you don't pull it off, it's like, oh, boo. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's always the risk, isn't it? I think one of the stories in Cloud Atlas is written that way. It's like a guy who's writing about his life, and then he says, you know, in the movie version, when they finally make my story into a movie, I hope the camera pans across, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And the next section is a woman who saw that movie. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. It's really, it's a really great book. I love that book. It's so cool. It's so much fun. I have so many works in progress. It's terrible. Another one is like a man, he's trying to prove his rightness and, 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 you know, Everyone thought I was crazy, but I'm not crazy. And I realized, okay, that's sort of what, why he's writing this. Um, mm. And that's helped me focus a lot. So that's, a, that's one that's kind of fun to write, although it can be kind of stressful because the guy's a real jerk. <laughs> and sometimes you need a break from him. Um, any more of your stories that you, you want to hold up? As a... I, the, the one that uh, was out in Uncanny, uh, This Is Not My Adventure, which mm. the title already... T- tells you a little bit about sort of the the way that it's going to go about was sort of um i I, that's a second person well it's i think it's like um my english name in that sense where it has a second person and a first person narration Mm. so it's a direct address but he's directly addressing initially uh sort of like a the it's he's going to sort of like a narnia revisiting a Narnia place after the death of his mom. And he's like in a deep depression, you know, because of the grief. And it's told in sort of like a second person, but uh, present tense, Mm. mainly because I wanted to show that um, when you are feeling that way, it feels like it's always now and now never ends. Yeah. And that was sort of an interesting exercise, mainly because at the end, the you then uh, sort of expands to, to sort of uh, include sort of all of the other residents of the Narnia place, and not just one person. Hmm. So anyway, it, it was it was um, it's one of those few ones that has ve- hit very close to home for me, and uh, I, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Nice. So why don't we move on to examples of this in other stories and in in maybe more famous literature. Um, The example for me that always comes up, and and this is one of my favorite 
narrators in a story is Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Uh, it, I mean, it, it is rather explicit that he's trying to prove his sanity while he's telling the story. I mean, the first, the first phrase is nervous, true, dreadfully nervous I have been, but why will you say that I am mad? So the whole, his whole goal here is to convince somebody I'm not crazy. And I always got the sense that he was talking to like a criminal psychologist or something who's trying to determine, okay, do we put this person in an insane asylum or do we put him in like regular jail and, and execute him? Mm. So that is the sense I get from reading that story of like, here's some person who is trying to investigate, okay, do we put him in regular jail or in crazy jail? Right. And well, he's trying to insist like, I'm not crazy. I think that that one's really interesting because at the very end, if I remember correctly, like the very last line is him like basically pulling up the floorboards to, see, I'm not crazy. Look, see, <laughs> the heart is right there. <laughs> You're like, oh no, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that I absolutely love that one. And it's one of my favorite um, openings in a story either. Just, yeah. just telling you everything you need to know in the first line. It's like, <laughs> I'm not crazy. Right, right, and I think it's great because it, it the more he try the the more he tries to convince uh, in that first line the, the more he tries to convince the the whomever he's talking to uh, the more sort of unhinged he starts sounding. And it's like, uh, right. buddy, back up. <laughs> yeah, I'm not crazy. I just have good hearing, and I can hear demons. <laughs> it's perfectly normal. It's not weird. My brain is very good. <laughs> yes. <sighs> He's great. He's great. I'm trying to think of some other examples. Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye, which I recently reread. I'll, I'm planning a bonus episode on that one because it's amazing. Although the bonus episode might have come out by the time I release this podcast. I don't know. Time, is, time isn't real. But <laughs> in this one, it's tricky because Toni Morrison jumps between different viewpoints. There's first person narrating. There's third person but with this opening passage, she creates what she called a conspiratorial relationship between reader and narrator. In this case, the narrator, I think, is named Claudia. She's this little girl who belongs to this neighborhood where, where the story takes place. And in, it, in, in the way she does this narration, there's this sense of we. There's this sense. She's sort of drawing the reader into this we so the reader is kind of part of this community that horribly wronged uh, Pakola Breedlove. Hmm. So there, to me, there's a very strong sense of intent of like, you're not separate from this. We're sort of part of this, and there's sort of a sense of moral responsibility on the reader that I get from it, which is really really interesting. And it's it's a fucking great book. <laughs> sounds fan. Sounds fantastic. It's good. It's fucking heavy, though. It is heavy. Well, <laughs> we, we all have time to read now, don't we? We sure do. Yeah. Okay, what about, you had a couple of examples here, too. Yeah, um, I was, the, when you were talking about this, um, I immediately went to the Book of the New Sun. Hmm. And, and Gene Wolfe is, uh, I guess, just made a, the, the last, you know, half of his career all about you know, writing about memory and recall and stuff like that. But this is just sort of like a fantastic uh, series of books, sort of in the dying earth type of subgenre, which, you know, it's so far in the future that 
technology or it seems magical or it is magical it it's not necessarily explained but the 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 protagonist severian is basically telling recalling his his rise to power as the, like the supreme sort of uh dictator or ruler of the the world that uh he's narrating in so right off the bat you you realize that he's sort of telling He's telling his own hagiography is really what he's doing, but he sets sets up like this expectation that he'll never lie to you, and that he mm-hmm. has perfect recall. Um, and as you read through it, at least the first time, there's instances where things don't line up, where there's hints that he might be hiding something or shifting events in time, uh, so that they don't have causality. Or the causality that should be, it, they should have, and um, and a, as as a result, you know, you're supposed to sort of read the entire series all the way through, and upon rereading it, it becomes much more uh, apparent to you. You know, that's it's sort of a weird series of books in that people say, yeah, yeah, just get through them. It's the reread of the books that is really going to bear fruit for you. Hmm. So it's sort of like, I, I would imagine that, uh, I haven't finished them myself yet, but uh, I would imagine it's like watching uh, The Sixth Sense or, or Memento or something like that that's meticulously crafted so that you can go back and see hints along the way of what was a stat, you know, what it becomes the reveal. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, that that's that's a really interesting one for me. One that is absolutely you know riveting for me was uh also the drowning girl hmm. i don't know if you've ever read it but uh caitlin r kiernan sets up this uh protagonist who is it, as i understand it, it's semi-autobiographical but the protagonist is called uh india morgan phelps or imp as other people call her and um she has a long history of mental illness in the family She's got this great little line that says that her family's uh, lunacy lines up tidy as boxcars. And uh, it's just fantastic because it starts off with like her, uh, even from the beginning, the first lines is, uh, I want to write, I think it's something like, I want to write ghost story that has werewolves and mermaids in it. She wrote, I also write this. So right off the bat, she's telling you, sort of establishing that she is not in any way, shape, or form an unreliable or, or a reliable narrator, within the 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 you know the usual parameters, if you will, right? So and then it becomes like this entire thing about how she saw this painting in a museum when she was a child, and she's sort of haunted by that painting, and the girl that she saw in the painting. Sort of, she sees her hitchhiking by the side of the road, but you're never sure if that girl that she saw is in fact real, a ghost, or some sort of weird, uh, maybe the, just the ghost of her own family trauma. Mm. It's just fantastic. I, I can't recommend it enough, but if you want sort of like a reliable quote-unquote narrator, this is probably not the one for you. <laughs> That sounds fantastic. It is really good. Like I, I even when I was like looking up that that one line that I referenced, I started like looking for it and I was like, oh wait, 
I gotta read the first. I, I start. I finished the first chapter within like five minutes. I was like, "What? What?" It mm. just fell right into it. It's really good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. Let's see. Uh, in the outline, you also mentioned part two of Don Quixote. Oh, that is hilarious. So apparently, between I, I'm not entirely sure how much time uh, passed between part one and part two of Don Quixote being published. And I'm a little iffy on whether that was when Cervantes was put in jail uh, or if he wrote it in part one in jail. I'm not entirely sure. But the, the fact of the matter is that by the time he got part two out, and this is in the real world, somebody else had started writing a continuation. And so he decides to not only make it weird by uh, having in part two, the villagers that Sancho Panza and Don Quixote meet have read the first part of the book. They know what to expect. So they like they know, it's like, oh, do something crazy, Don Quixote. We know what you do. <laughs> and they're like, and Sancho, come on. You got to say something funny. We know you always say something funny. <laughs> and that is such a weird thing to do. But apart from that, he also includes the sort of fan fiction of Don Quixote as part of, as like a, an alternate uh, story that other people are arguing about <laughs> that then is presented <laughs> like, you know, like somehow people are arguing about it and Don Quixote is like, no, that's not, that part's not true. You know, it, it's sort of really funny because it just sort of sets up this whole um, idea of that the... First off, very meta idea of the book actually exists within the world it's it's describing, hmm. and and then on top of that, the fact that you know as you read it, you know, as you read the, the as you read others, you know they will in turn read you, which is hmm. which is a, a, a useful sort of um, message to have. I feel you know like that's how human relations are. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just so bonkers and such a funny bold move to pull off that I I can't believe that that was written like in the is it the 17th century? I think it was like Yeah, it's super long ago yeah. and it, yet it sounds so postmodern. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's like what what? <laughs> that's so funny because we always think of like, oh, that's such a David Foster Wallace thing to do. That's such a modern thing to do and then when you come across a book that does that and you're like, when was this written? 1301? Yeah. What? Yeah, it's, it's. I love finding that. That's so cool. I mean, it's. I mean, uh, let's not be. Let's not fool ourselves. Don Quixote parts one and two are pretty long, but I mean that. I think that that's pretty worth it. Just, just the the idea that this work that was written sort of at the tail end, at the decadent tail end of the Spanish Empire, mm. just has all these weird asides and. And just very weird metatextual stuff that includes you into the story and invites you to view it in a different light. It's just so strange. We think it's, right. like you said, we think it's something that's more modern now. It's okay. But he was doing that in the 17th century, you know. So it's, <laughs> it just shows you that I, I think that these questions and these ideas about, you know, who's reading who and who are you talking to when you tell a story are really old. I think that we just don't have a lot of examples that have survived time. Right, right. 
and we all think that we've invented the wheel, but... <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's that funny thing. I feel like um, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a, a thing about writers. I don't know. Maybe it says something about me as a writer, but people want to believe that they're uh, coming up with a new idea in, in the arts specifically, like in the creative arts. And it's sort of funny because, you know, like science is, I think it was Newton that said that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And that's a very pragmatic sort of uh, brushing away of like, I'm not that important. I'm just working on what other people gave me. Right. And I think that that, that can be a useful thing to keep in the balance yeah, just to make sure that you're not thinking that you came up with this all on your own. It also it also inoculates you against uh, people saying, "Oh, so and so came up with that idea already." Right, right. Like, yeah, did you know how long people have been re- telling each other stories like for a long fucking time? Like, <laughs> I was listening to a music theory podcast and they talked about how making up a melody, like chances are a snippet of your melody has already been existed or it was already in another song. And they said, there are only eight notes. There is a limited number of ways to combine those. Like chances are someone has come up with a melody very similar to that before. That doesn't mean you're a bad composer or you're ripping someone else off. It's just, there's only eight notes. Gotta gotta mention Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh yeah. <laughs> Speaking of like narrators and relationship, that one's interesting because the uh, epistolary. I hope I'm pronouncing this word right. Format. I believe that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> I hope so. I, I mispronounce words all the time. I'm used to seeing words written down without mm. hearing them spoken aloud because I didn't go to study for an MFA. But <laughs> the epistolary format is its kind of interesting because it's all just letters. People are writing to each other. Jonathan's writing letters to Mina. Mina and Lucy are writing each other. There are newspaper clippings. There's this and there's that. So like each little mini one has this sort of ideal relationship in mind, the specific relationship in mind and, and a specific thing they're trying to get across. And the idea is that Mina, had, the good little nerd, has compiled all of this correspondence to try to sort of figure out, okay, what the hell happened here? Well, and, and because she's also the only one who knows how to, uh, it's not a typewriter, it's, um, right. I forget the, the, the device, but yeah, right. uh, she's the only one with the skill. It's sort of funny. It's a, it's a great device in any way. Yeah, yeah. And there are bits where it draws attention to itself as consciously these are people writing each other. And I remember there's a bit where Jonathan's writing these letters to Mina and the way that Bram Stoker explains the fact that, like, why did Dracula let him send these is that he wrote them in shorthand, mm. which Count Dracula can't read. So, like, that's why he let it get out. Uh, that's That's fascinating. There's some little thing like that, like he wrote it in abbreviations. He wrote it in a way that Mina could understand, but Dracula couldn't. 
And, and, and that's the only reason why his letters were delivered. Right. And, and I think that that also reinforces the idea that Mina is sort of like more versed in sort of like secretarial arts, if you will. Right. Um, because she would know shorthand uh, as part of like knowing how to type or whatever. I just remembered one that uh, that I, I can't believe I, I forgot. It's a recent one by uh, The Fisherman by Jonathan Langan. Ah, which is nothing but, it's sort of like Moby Dick by way of Cthulhu mythos, by way of, you know, horrible depression and grieving. And it's nothing but like guys going out to fish and telling each other stories. And basically it's a, the one that got away story mm. at its heart, but, you know, like horrific. So. Right, right. Uh, and and like there's an entire I just remembered that because there's an entire section which is essentially like a, an extended flashback. It's like a seventy pages of the book, and it's not a long wow. book. Maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating that a little bit, but it is a long section of the book which goes into like they stop at this diner on the way to the the fishing hole where the the big one got away, if you will. And the the diner owner just sits there at the counter and starts telling them the story of the background of where they're going. Hmm. And it it's totally fascinating. I was completely engrossed by it. But in you know, like it's it, it just shows that he was able to pull it off because it didn't feel like record scratch. Let me tell <laughs> you how you're gonna get you know, let me tell you all about you know, what, what happened before. Right, right, right. Oh, and now that I'm thinking a bit of old Gothic novels, Frankenstein. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole narrative framing device where Doctor Frankenstein is telling us this story because he got he went to the Arctic and met a boat or something, and they like get him in, and they go, they're like, "What's your deal? Why are you way the fuck out here? It's cold <laughs> as shit, dude. Why are you here?" So he like explains here's what led to this and here's why you're going to see a weird dude made out of corpses. And I do find that is so much more of a thing in a lot of 19th century literature, especially like Gothic literature. There's always, there's often an, an explicit framing device and it's like, here, you must hear my tale of warning. And <laughs> right, right. You didn't find these like random omniscient narrators so much, these third person narrators. It was, it was very often first person and like kind of personal and and like there's a reason they're telling this sort of yeah you just reminded me of uh there's this fantastic little short story uh i believe it's called the upper birth by f marion crawford which is like more or less of that time frame uh which is this entire like talking about like this guy is convinced that the upper birth in his uh stateroom uh, is haunted it's just fantastic and like the like all the the stuff that's going on and and so on and so forth and how it ends is really great i think you're absolutely right that it's sort of like this weird um a framing device that a lot of like 19th century authors even early 20th century authors might use to get right. get straight to i want to tell a ghost story but how do i tell that yep. ghost story without seeming you know, like uh, louche or, or garish uh, to my f my other writerly friends. Right. 
right? It, it almost seems kind of like it makes me think of a lot of the found footage thing where it's not like, oh, here's a ghost story. It's like, this was a movie that came from some tapes that were rediscovered after the disappearance of three student filmmakers. There has to be a framing device. It can't just be like... Here's here's some stuff that happened. Well, that that, <laughs> that that's what uh, you you just reminded me of Fargo, which starts off. This is based on a true story, right? And which it totally it blatantly is isn't not, right. <laughs> it is not at all. <laughs> but the the fact of the matter is, if you don't know anything about it, you just see that, and, and that sort of gives it like this more weight. Uh, it's more weighty right. to you because you're like, oh wow, this this actually happened. How crazy! <laughs> yeah, and you're you're like. They're setting you up to just be enraptured and compelled by what's going on. It doesn't help that you you have a, a stellar cast and the Cohen right. and the Cohen brothers writing it. But uh, yeah, yeah, just oh god, I love that movie. <laughs> it is so good. It I fucking love the Cohen brothers so much. Just oh, just so good. Anyway, um, any other examples we can bring up in our own work and other people's work? Uh, mm, let me. Yeah, now you, you you put me on the spot all of a sudden. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> it's fine. No, I think I mean I I, I do have actually I do have a, a really sort of funny one, which is um, it's not humorous in the traditional sense, but uh, I wrote this one called "Writing for the End of the World" mm. uh, that came out of Nature's Futures. And, right, it uh, was a flash fiction story, right? Yeah, yeah, and so like speaking of framing devices. I set up like one of my one of my favorite jokes of all time as sort of like a framing device for the this idea of my question to myself as I was writing this story I was like how did how did we get so sort of focused in sci-fi or, or science fiction about like post-apocalyptic fiction you know why why is the end of the world so uh, such like a, a thing to write about and uh so I, I i just wanted to include that with some just general weirdness surrounding like um the the origins the financial origins of mfas and stuff like that and the idea of how a lot of people who put futurist as uh their title instead of a you know writer or science fiction author or whatever are generally invited to go speak at the NSA or, you know, one of the alphabet agencies. Right. And and they make a lot of money doing that. You know, it's a nice honorarium you get. And, and, and With zero qualifications. You're just a dude. Yeah, I, you did some research <laughs> a couple times and you, you thought, you imagined some stuff. Uh, right, that blew my mind when I realized that. Like, wait, futurists, there's no, like, qualification. You just make shit up and say, like, yeah, sure, there's going to be a moon colony in, by the year 1998. I don't know. Fuck it. Right. It's like, all right, you, that you sound, you're a futurist. I believe you for some reason. I believe, like, people like um, David Brin are actually, actually have, like, a scientific background. Uh, I forget if he's, like, an astrophysicist or something like that. But, you know, that's doesn't mean you know it doesn't mean much it it just means that you like he's not getting invited because he was an astrophysicist he got some credentialization for you know that that sort of su- supplements his writing and that's um, that's completely valid i'm not i'm not disparaging that but right just cuz he wrote a series of you know six novels about space exploration that had good math to checked out doesn't necessarily mean that 
you know what's going to happen in the future. But, you know, uh, far be it from me to say that if I were offered the chance, I would I would say no to the money. Right. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, uh, it's just sort of funny. But anyway, the, the point being that um, the parallel storytelling is just sort of like the writer going, well, you know, I don't know if me writing more, you know, more stories about the uh, post-apocalyptic stories or whatever is going to change anything. But I got to try something. Right. And I just found it to be like one of these things where it's one of those few stories where I actually inserted a, a writer character uh, into mm. the story. Because I, I honestly, I, sometimes I feel like that's as much as I'm going to be able to, to really do myself. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if I have any effect on, on changing anyone's mind, but I've got to write. And that's all, I, yeah, that's all I can really do right now. I can write the best story I can. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to deal with that temptation to write about a writer. Ugh. It, it is. Uh, it is. <laughs> honestly, I, I I don't like doing it. Uh, it. That is the only story I have, and, yeah. and hopefully it'll be the only story I will have. Uh, I mean, writers are fine. They're fine people. I'm a writer. You're a writer. You know, there's plenty of people I know yeah. that are fine, fine people. But you know, for people that are reading, I'm not entirely sure that it's that thrilling. I mean, there are plenty of people that do just basic stuff in the world that they're doing much more interesting and important stuff than I am. Right. Plus, it's I always feel like you're telling on yourself a little bit. If you're a writer, you're either like, it's either incredibly self-deprecating and like, oh, my life sucks. Or it's like, you're kind of Mary suing yourself. And mm. like, and the very attractive, extremely successful writer <laughs> or, or has lots of money and everybody super wants to make out with them. <laughs> yeah, or, or you're Stephen King and uh, you write uh, a horrible, drunk, cokehead author into your story. Yes. <laughs> For some reason, we're not entirely sure why. Right. <laughs> oh, why is why is there all these stories about a writer with substance abuse problems who's who's not being a very good husband? This is interesting. I don't know <laughs> why you wrote like twenty books about this. Something going on there, Steve. Oh, How's it know. going, Steve? What's up? Writing, writing as therapy is, is completely valid, but you should probably also get therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why don't we try and uh, wrap it up? Where can our listeners find your work? The most recent thing I have out and uh, possibly one of the, better, the longer things I've ever written uh, is up at Beneath Ceaseless Skies. It's, uh, my story is called As the Short of the Tides. So Blood Calls to Blood, and that's where you can find that one. Uh, most everything else can be found at CuriousFictions.com, under my name. Just a great site in general for other reprints and stuff like that for uh, other authors as well. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It was good talking to you. Hey, thanks for having me on. It was great. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'd be, yeah, I'd be willing to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, that is all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood and subscribe to get early access to new content, plus access to the Discord, where you can suggest episode topics. Book Club tier members also get a bonus episode every month in which we examine a notable work of fiction. And be sure to join us next time when we talk about the bitter medicine of downer endings. Until then, keep writing good.
Kitty Sneezes.com in color.